0: And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible-teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Acts chapter 8, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one right in front of you or a couple seats away, and you're certainly encouraged to have that. In Romans chapter 8, I'm going to read for you verses 25 to 40. In other words, to the end of the chapter, and then we'll commence. Hear now the word of the Lord. So when they had solemnly bore witness and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were proclaiming the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Rise up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. And so he rose up and went, and behold, there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. And then the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. And Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you understand what you are reading? he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of Scripture which he was reading was this, as a sheep is led to slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will recount his generation for his life is removed from the earth? And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you earnestly of whom does the prophet say of this, of himself or of someone else? And Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he proclaimed the good news about Jesus to him. And as he went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when he they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. And the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself on Azotus. And as he passed through, he kept proclaiming the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. May the Lord bless his word. God's sovereignty and man's salvation. That's what I want you to understand you see living, in living color here. Uh, it's not mere theology, but you actually see it written out in life. Now, when we talk about the sovereignty of God, some people are very confused over what exactly that means. But really, from the very first chapter of Genesis all the way to the very last verse in the book of Revelation, what you find is the sovereignty of God over all things, and it is made plain. And yet often you'll find it disparaged or ignored by most. God's sovereignty is seen most fully, though. In him as creator. In fact, you cannot come to grips with God's sovereignty until you have accepted the fact that God is the maker of all things, including you. God did not ask your permission to make this world. He did not ask for permission to make you. He just simply did because he is God. Gravity, therefore, works the way it does because he said so. The sun and the moon are set in their paths because he said so, and no amount of effort on our part will change that. Adam had no say in his creation. He had no say in his gender. He had no say in his responsibilities, nor did Eve. They just simply were made. When you read the stories of the Old and New Testaments, you oftentimes will find that you don't reflect upon the fact that these are people caught up in events in which they have no say, and yet they're in them. Abraham did not have any say on whether or not God would choose him to be the father of a great nation. God just chose him. Pharaoh was born and raised for the purpose of power, but he had no inkling that God had ordained him to actually be the recipient of God's power and judgment. Think about the countless Israelites, such as Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who had been taken into captivity by Babylon or Assyria, ripped out of their homeland and shipped to another place with no say in what's happening and why is it happening to me. Think of the murdered children by Herod Herod in his efforts to destroy Jesus, all in fulfillment of prophecy, the sovereignty of God. Beloved, wage, wars are waged, victories and defeats occur. In fact, entire nations rise and fall as God ordains them. Men and women live and die with no actual say on how things will work out. Have you ever asked yourself why one man is rich and another is poor? Have you ever asked yourself why you were born in the family that you were born into? Why is it that you were not born to some poor prostitute on the streets of Calcutta or to a, 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 as an AIDS baby in some remote village in Cameroon, Africa? Why? Why do you live here? Why do you have these opportunities? We just live our life and the sovereignty of God just continues to roll out, not just on the individual but level, but on a macro level. And now I will tell you this if you let your mind start to think on this for any length of time, you will become very disconcerted. Unless you have your mind grounded in the message of the Bible. When we talk about God, we have to remember that He is not the sum of His attributes. When, so when we talk about God's sovereignty, it's not something that He just possesses, nor is He summed up in all of His attributes. In other words, God is those attributes, that he simply is. What do I mean by that? You can't take the various attributes that the Bible tells us God possesses, like his goodness and his holiness and his sovereignty, and if you add them all up, you end up with God. That's not possible. Nor do you want to think about these attributes as something that sits outside of God and that he has possession of like he goes to some big lake filled with goodness and he owns the lake. No, the Bible would describe it this way, that God is life. He doesn't just possess life. That God is good. He doesn't just possess goodness. He simply is. That's the same thing with sovereignty. He is sovereign. Why? Why? What? What is it? He simply is sovereign. He is the sovereign one. As a result, he creates, and he has dominion, and he has expressions of power, but all of it's because by his very nature, he is sovereign. You can hate it. You can push against it. You can reject it. You can even try try to twist it all about, but it doesn't change that he is still sovereign, And things work out the way they work out because God is the one who ordained it. Now, there are various ways you can define sovereignty, and I found the easiest for me to do is the blunt one, that God has the right to do what he wants, how he wants, when he wants, to whom he wants, and that no one has the right to question nor the ability to prevent. God just is. In other words, you're a creature made by a creator for the purposes of the creator. And when you finally learn that, when that settles deeply into your soul, what will happen is things change. What will happen is that you will begin to become very small and God becomes quite a bit larger than you first imagined. It can be very intimidating as you do that because you begin to realize to fight against him is but a gnat striking out against the fullness of the sun, But if you become wise, you will find your refuge in the Sovereign One. You will find that you have been set, as the psalmist says, upon a rock. It's a rock that's firm and unshakable. Or as we learned last week with Grayson, that God is for us, and if God is for us, who can stand against us? Only one who believes in the sovereignty of God can say that. Only one who believes that he is the supreme one, that none can thwart his ways and his will and his purposes. Then you can stand there and say, my God is my rock. I will not fall. I cannot fall because God is for us. However, when we talk about sovereignty, the challenge is often in understanding how it works. And I think this is my most common reality as a pastor interacting with people on theology and doctrine and what does the Bible teach. When talking about sovereignty, the challenge is how does it work? How does God save then? And you have two extremes that usually come up. One says that God is so sovereign, but then he sovereignly has chosen to not be sovereign if you can follow that, that God has sovereignly chooses not to choose who would be saved. He'll leave that up to their own free will, whatever that means. Then you have the other extreme that goes the other way, and they'll say, well, God is sovereign, and therefore it really doesn't matter if we evangelize or do missions. God's going to save his people. What you have in our passage today, actually, is a story That helps us see how God sovereignly saves. And what I like about it is it's not a theological explanation, but it's real life. We have the gospel being preached to people who are on the fringes of humanity and they're coming to faith. The Samaritans are coming to faith. We have a whole attention of the whole attention of the Jerusalem church on this effect, so much so that they send a delegate of two main uh, of the two key apostles down to investigate to see is this happening. Then we see them see that the spirit has not come upon these people. So through the apostles, the spirit comes upon the people, and now everyone witnesses that and they realize that God is truly saving Samaritans. The Jew hates the Samaritan. The Jew cannot, in their wildest imagination, think that God will move among the Samaritans. And yet now they see that he is, that the people are hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're believing it, and they have the spirit of God, meaning they are in full agreement and full benefits of the new covenant. If we were living back then and we had Twitter, it would be hashtag Samaritan Revival. Hashtag God is moving. God is moving in Samaria. That, it would be on everything. Everyone would be talking about this man named Philip and what he's doing and how people by the droves are coming to faith. And right in the middle of that wonderful account of many people who were on the edges of society, in the Jewish mind at least, we also have a shifting of direction, and we now are on an Ethiopian. And where is this Ethiopian? He's in the middle of the desert. And all that while that all this exciting stuff's happening in Samaria, here's this guy in his chariot, all alone in the desert. What about him? What about his soul? Why is it that we also have this sudden shift of attention in Luke's writing? Well, we had an example two weeks ago of a false convert, an almost Christian in Simon the Magician, but today what we have is the example of a true convert in this man from Ethiopia. But what you're actually seeing is how God saves, how God sovereignly saves people, and it's worth observing. So I want you to note five different aspects of how God saves, five aspects of how God saves. In verse 25, we have the first one, the first aspect of how God sovereignly saves. Remember what we're looking at is God is sovereign. He will save who are his. How's he do that? How's he do that? Do we, do we freak out or do we just sit around and do nothing? What is it that we have to see? Well, we see first that God uses the gospel to save. So when they had solemnly bore witness, they being the the apostles, and had spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were doing what? We're proclaiming the gospel. They were proclaiming the gospel to the many villages of the Samaritans. Now remember, Peter and John had been sent down to Samaria to see if the gospel really was taking effect. They had found a whole body of believers, but these had not yet received the Spirit. So through the Spirit, I mean, through the apostles, the Spirit comes upon this despised people, and no one can debate it. It's happened, just like it happened up in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Now they see it happening among the Samaritans. And so what happens here is a shifting of scenes. So Samaria and the Samaritans and most certainly Simon, uh, the magician, they're all fading away. And now the focus is right now on the apostles, and then it will shift fully to the Ethiopian. Simon is nowhere to be found. What we want to see and what Luke wants you to see is now, okay, this great work is happening in Samaria. What happens now? Well, the work is the apostles. What are they doing? They're teaching and preaching. They're literally giving testimony Well, what does that mean? Well, when the apostles gave testimony, what it was was about Jesus Christ. They would testify that they saw him. They walked with him. They were taught by him. Most importantly, they would talk and testify that he was lifted up onto the cross as the scripture ordained, and that he died, and he was buried, and he was raised from the dead on the third day. That's what they would testify. Remember, Through them, the critical information is being given. Why? Because they don't have a Bible, especially the Samaritans. The Samaritans rejected all of the Old Testament except for the first five books. And so they don't have anything. The New Testament doesn't exist. It's not even started to be written at this point. And so what the apostles are doing is giving testimony and instruction to these brand new believers so that they might know and understand. Everything has changed for the Samaritan. Everything, their whole life has radically changed now that they see Christ as Lord. But then eventually, after they do that, they begin to head back to Jerusalem. Now, if they believe in the sovereignty of God, what then should they do? Do they say, well... This is exciting. God is sovereign, and so he will save whom he wishes. No, that's not what they do. They say God is sovereign, and yet the means by which God is sovereign and saving people is through the what? The gospel. So what do they do? Is as they start heading back to Jerusalem, they're not in a hurry to get back there. No, they realize God is moving among the Samaritans. Therefore, as we go up, we must preach the gospel. Why? Because God uses the gospel to save you. There is not a person in this room who is genuinely saved, who got saved somehow apart from the gospel. God uses the gospel. This is very key to note, but it's quickly passed over. There's a change that's occurred among the Samaritans. But there's also a change that's occurred to the apostles. Their eyes are opened up that the church is bigger than they thought. One of the things I discover as I traveled around the world and have taught pastors in various countries, what what is probably most precious to me is I get to worship with brothers and sisters that I didn't even know existed. And I'm just there, and I'm with them, and I have a chance to perhaps preach to them. And my soul is just filled with joy as I realize God is working in ways and in places I never imagined. And that's what's happening to the apostles. They came down. Is God really working in Samaria? Oh, my goodness, he is. The Spirit comes upon them. What do they now do? They say, God saves people. We must preach the gospel to these people. Complaints often rise up when we talk about the sovereignty of God of fatalism. Or, well, God wouldn't do that because that's just like being a robot. Or that God is unjust if he chooses. And then you have the pushback by the other side who says, well, God's sovereignty, you have to deal with it. And the next thing you have are them throwing verse bombs at each other, trying to convince each other, but nobody's really listening. But somehow in all of that, what gets lost is that the means of salvation, the way that God sovereignly saves, is through the gospel. So why are you fighting so much? Why don't you guys stop fighting, in other words, and just bring the gospel. Preach the gospel. Tell people the gospel. We need to remember that it's the declaration that through Jesus Christ and His death, His death in our place for our sin, in His resurrection for our life, in that alone not our efforts, not our goodness, not our trying better, but only by trusting in Christ can we be saved from the judgment to come. And so we end up fighting or squabbling over doctrine, and then we end up missing the point, which is bring the gospel. So once the apostles saw that God was really going to save these people, which was a major mind shift for them, the first thing they got busy doing was not squabbling but preaching the gospel. Beloved, you and I cannot save a single soul. You and I cannot convince a single person to turn and follow Jesus Christ. I say this with no anger or bitterness or anything else. I just say this as a pastor to you, that some of you, I think, are still killing yourself in trying to get a person saved. And you can't save them. You just can't do it. And some of you in this room have fallen into the trap of being a fatalist. Your mind is set that God's not going to save your wife, your husband. Your mind is just set. Your mind is set that my child is lost. That's fatalism. You think that in your mind that a person isn't the elect and so... You ignore his soul. But you're not called by God to figure out if somebody is elect. What you are called to do is give them what? The gospel. The gospel. God is the one who saves. There's no trick to it, but we can tell the person the gospel. It's the means of hope. It is the power of God, as Scripture says, unto salvation to everyone who believes. And therefore, where the gospel is not preached, I will guarantee you, God will not save. If you do not bring the gospel to bear, God will not save. You say he's sovereign. He is. And he works through his gospel. You don't sit back and say, well, it's up to him. I I guess, no, you bring the gospel. When a believer relies on trusting that God that God tells him that the gospel is the way a person will be saved. When you actually obey that and believe that, then all you're showing is that you believe that God is sovereign. God has made the rules and God said the way a man or woman will be saved is through the gospel. So let's preach the gospel. So the first way I just want you to see God's saving sovereignty is through the preaching of the gospel. The second aspect is that none of God's elect will be missed. This is verses 26 down to 29. Now in this, you can look at it again while I give you some historical background that hopefully will help. I need to convey that just so you can appreciate, again, how the Bible is written and how careful Luke was as a historian to write down details so that you can lock it into history and, and verify it as being true and correct. Everyone in the area, if the, you told them about this road heading to Gaza, everyone knew where it was, just like we all know where the interstate is. It's just, you know it. The desert road that is being mentioned in this section is actually the less traveled road. There you had two ways that you could get down from Jerusalem into Egypt. And this was the one that no one went on because it was the most difficult. But near Gaza was a place of water which all would stop at so as to refresh themselves and their animals before they finished the long journey to Egypt. And it was a very difficult one. So there's this place near Gaza where everyone would stop. Everyone knew there was a spring of fresh water there that they could have. You have a man here described as a eunuch. The normal meaning of that is then that he's been castrated at some point in his life. However, on the side, it might not mean that here. It's hard to tell because the word actually became a word used to just describe government officials. And the reason was because the kings in that day frequently would have eunuchs be their, their important people in their government. So they didn't have to worry about these guys messing around with their harem, with their various wives, and mixing the bloodlines up and all of that. So they found it most convenient to castrate, make a man a eunuch, and then put him in charge of something. And they didn't have to worry about anything going on. And after a while, just the word eunuch meant an official in the government. So it could be just that, or it could be that he was in fact physically a eunuch. Regardless, he was a man of great trust because he was essentially the, the finance minister. He was in charge of the money. The fact that he's sitting on a chariot talks about the high level of power and wealth he had. Very few would be able to move about in that manner. If you're a wealthy person, you had a donkey. If you were rich, to have a chariot is like you have your own private uh, jet waiting for you to go everywhere. The word Candace is another verifiable fact. It actually is more of a title than a name, but you have to understand Ethiopia to understand that. Now, this Ethiopia in the Bible is not the modern-day one. It's actually above it. It kind of comes a little bit into it, but it's above present-day Ethiopia. It's, it's actually known as the kingdom of Meroe, M-E-R-O-E, Meroe. But you might recognize it with another name that it went by, and that is the kingdom of Cush. You'll see that in the Old Testament as you read through. It was a very exotic place. It was on the very edge of the civilized world from the Roman Empire's perspective. Very unique, exotic. It was a flourishing kingdom. It was ruled by a male king. But here's what's interesting about Meroe is that they would have a male king, but he was treated as if he was the incarnation of the sun god. And so they they did not deal with him on the day-to-day activities. He would be set aside and used for all the ceremonies. He was essentially worshipped. And so what they would do is they would then have a queen mother, and the queen mother's job was to take care of the day-to-day business of the kingdom. So she was exceedingly powerful, and she carried with her always the same title, and the title was Candace. It's not her name, it's actually her title. And everyone there knew this. He's a eunuch. He works directly under the queen mother, Candace, and he's in charge of the finances. This is a powerful, powerful man. Well, we see then in verse 26, the sovereignty of God in play. How do we see it? Well, we see it because an angel comes to him and says, go to this area in the desert. What I find is, again, worth pointing out is that Philip was in the middle of a great work of revival in Samaria at the time. Remember, he was there doing the signs, the miracles, the preaching of the gospel, and many people coming to faith. And yet, God's not saying, well, this is where the action is, let's get going. Why? Because it's God who sovereignly saves so he can have Philip down there in this city preaching and many come into uh, faith. And the next thing you know, he says, I want you to go into the desert where you've got just one guy. But he's directed to go there and he's not given any details. Notice he's not told by the angel, go into the desert where you might see a mighty work of God or anything like that. All you got is go to the desert. Okay. And He goes. It actually is a sign of great faith. This is actually known in the Bible as what's known as the absurd command, something just as an aside. The Bible is filled with these. They're called absurd commands. It seems out of place, this command. It kind of randomly just shows up, and, and it just seems silly almost. And it actually demands faith to obey because you don't have much information to go by. You see it all the time. You see it with Noah being told, build an ark. And it's going to take him 120 years to build this ark because I'm going to flood the world. What's that mean? He doesn't tell him what flooding means. He doesn't know what rain is. It's not raining at that time. He just gets told this weird thing. Build this honking ship. Okay. It's an absurd command. Abram, when he got called by God to leave his homeland, uh, to one which he knows nothing about. He doesn't get to get more information. He's just to believe this very absurd command. It happens again with Abraham when he is told, offer up his only son. The son whom the promise of the new nation is to come from, he's supposed to now offer him as a sacrifice. That's an absurd command, and yet he obeys. You have it with Peter in, and later on in Acts where he has a vision of these various creatures and crawling things that he's, as a Jew, is forbidden to eat, but he's told, take and eat. And that's what we have here is, Philip, go into the desert. Okay. So now we get to meet the Ethiopian. We find that this man is one who worships Yahweh. He this is very significant to note this. He has traveled all the way from his country, all the way up into Jerusalem to worship. You see a devotion in this man for God because his opportunities to actually worship in Jerusalem would be very limited, extremely limited. Let me explain. First of all, he's a Gentile, and the temple worship in Jerusalem, they would have the outer court was reserved for just Gentiles. You could not go beyond that. You would be killed. Even if you were a faithful convert, you were still a Gentile, and you cannot go out of the, church, uh, the court of the Gentiles. So they never get to be in that close union and fellowship. But he's a eunuch. And if he is physically a eunuch, then he not only can't enter the Gentile court, he has to stay outside of the temple in totality. The law forbids him as a castrated man to have any opportunity to be part of the worship in the temple. And yet he goes anyhow. He believes in God and he, he goes there to worship. And now he's been up there. And it's time for him to begin to head back to his home. And he's out there in the middle of nowhere, minding his own business. And some guy comes walking up to him. Now you see in him some unique things. You see that he has a scroll, a book. He has the scroll, a lease of Isaiah, which is exceedingly rare. No one had that. You had to be very wealthy to be able to afford a scroll The fact is that he's able to read it, showing he has tremendous education. But with all of this background, don't miss a point. The point is God will save his people, and it's going to be through the gospel. So here you have a man in the middle of nowhere. God sees him. Have you ever wondered if God sees you? Have you ever wondered, does he even know have you ever been praying for somebody and you want them to come to faith, and, and but you in your heart really is, are we even wondering if God has seen them? Here is a man in the middle of the desert by himself with his scroll on his way home, and God sees him. One of the most common things I get asked as a pastor is, what about those who have never heard the gospel? What about them? How can they be saved? And you actually have the answer in part here. First of all, you see that the Lord has ordained salvation to be, that those the Lord has ordained salvation to come, they shall be saved. He knows each of them. He will effectually draw each of them to himself through the gospel, through Christ. And second, the way he does it is through the word of God and the hearing of the gospel. That's what you're seeing here. Here's a man minding his own business, and yet he is to be saved this day. God sends this man Now he has the word, and he hears the gospel, and he believes. In fact, this whole story is full of special, unique, even mysterious aspects. But if you strip it all away, it's actually very simple, isn't it? Here's a man reading the word of God. and He wants to understand, and you see another man who's obedient to ask him and then teach. There's a book I would really recommend you buying. And then reading, of course. It's a very simple book. It's called Eternity in Their Hearts by Don Richardson. Eternity in Their Hearts. He actually chronicles. He's, he was a missionary, and he writes really well. Um, he chronicles how missionary after missionary has have gone to places where the gospel has never reached, and they encounter a group of people who from long ago, sometimes centuries To time past their memory, they have been waiting for the promise that the true God, however they would recall it that, the true God was going to send them a person who had a book, and that that person would bring them the way to know the true God. It's really a neat story, and he just shows you example after example after example. In fact, some of them, their legend was that it would be a white man. And so then this missionary shows up, as a white man, and he's just hoping to make some initial contact, and they're, and they're touching him. And, they're, and, they're, and, and finally, as he begins to inquire, he finds out that they are wanting to know, do you have the book? I don't know what, you know, he, he's just, he's full of the way we think, you know, I got to ask questions, I can need to figure out the bridge building. How can I reach them? What are our points of continuity and, and agreement? And, and all they want to know is, are you the man with the book? And what's the book? The book that will tell us of the one who made us. The book that will tell us of the true God. Wow. Was, is that not cool? Read by the book. Read it. You'll enjoy it. Multiple times this kind of thing happens. All they are doing is the same thing that Ethiopian eunuch is having have happen. Romans 1 tells us that everyone knows there's God. We know because the power of creation, but also Romans 1 says because God has made it known to us in our hearts. And yet we turn around and suppress it and reject it and fight it. So we make gods in our own image. But we also see, if you keep your fingers here, go back to John 6 and we'll just spend a few minutes there. In John 6, we see what Jesus himself said. Because Acts 8 is really an illustration of what Jesus is saying here. What's happened in John 6 is that he fed the 5,000. The next day, he goes to the other side of the lake, and they come out, and they're looking for him. And then what he says, now notice, He says, you seek, in verse 26, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. In other words, the only reason you're looking for me is I fed you. So don't work for that food, he says, but for a different kind of food which endures to eternal life. And the Son of Man will give that to you. Then they say, well, what should we do in 28 so that we may do the works of God? He says, look, you... You, you want to figure out what you have to do. Here's the work of God. What is it that you believe him who he has sent? All right, who's that? He says, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? So they're like, well, what is it? You show me the sign. We'll believe you. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus is like, yes. Truly, truly, I say to you, Moses has not given you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. He's like, you're right. He did feed them, but that was not the true bread. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So their next answer is, well, then give us that bread so we don't have to be hungry anymore. And Jesus says, you're missing the point still. I am the bread of life, 35. He who comes to me will never hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. So he shifted it away from bread, and he's like, I'm that bread. I'm what you need. But I say to you that you have seen me, and yet you don't believe. So now he's going to explain what's really going on. He says, I am that bread of life, and if you believe in me, you will never hunger. The problem is you have seen me, and you don't believe. Why? Verse 37. Verse 37 all that the father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. Why do you not believe? By the way, come and believe here in this verse or passage mean the exact same thing. Why do you not come? Why do you not believe? I can tell you that verse 37 says, because you have not been given to the son, because all that the father gives to the son will come to him. Do you see it there? God is the one, the Father is the one who gives the Son a people, and every one of them will come, and the one who comes to me I will not cast away. I will raise him up on the last day. Why do we have this assurance? Verse 38, for this reason, I have come down out from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Well, the next question should be, well, then what is that will? And he says, now this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose how many? I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. That means that Christ has been given a people that he must redeem and he must keep them safe until the end. Because if he loses one, he has not faithfully kept the will of this father. This is our assurance that the Son has come to keep the will of the Father. What is that will? All those that the Father gave me, I will keep. They will come. I will raise them up. I will not cast them away. Now, this is the will of him who sent me. Of that, all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up. And this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up. He goes on in verse 44, no one, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Why do they come? They came because the Father has drawn them, compelled them to come to Christ. He goes on with various other things in here about uh, eating his flesh, his blood. You can go to my old sermons to hear me deal with that in detail. I want you to get now in verse 59, He's now alone with his disciples. He's been teaching. And the the man asked, well, this is a difficult statement. All the stuff you were just telling them about, well, all that the Father comes and no one can come unless the Father, and and you are the bread, and and they need to eat and drink of you. This is hard. And Jesus doesn't cut them slack. He says, does this cause you to stumble? You're grumbling. Why? Is this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the son, son of Man ascending to where he was before? The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. And yet there are some of you who don't believe. Why? Because Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. The whole time he's talking to all these people, he knows exactly who are his. For this reason, he therefore says, I have said to you, no one can come to me unless it's been granted him of the Father. You and I are looking and say, well, maybe if we soften the message, maybe we change the message, maybe if we did it this way, or he said it that way. And Jesus says, you know what? No, you just need to preach the gospel. They will come. All who are mine shall come and the ones who have not come will not come because the Father is not granted. That's not your job. That's my problem. Your job is the gospel. Now go back to Acts. Now Paul said in 2 Timothy, he says, the Lord knows who are his. And you know what? One of the his is this Ethiopian sitting in the middle of the desert. This becomes a battle cry for Missions. It's that a subtle assurance that God will save his people. Our job is not to discern who those people are or we become like the Jews, freaking out that Samaritans came to faith. Or later on, they freak out when other Gentiles come to faith. And they're like, I can't believe God's going to save them. It's our job simply to go and bring the gospel. He doesn't ask us to figure out who will be saved. He simply tells you and I, Proclaim the gospel, and God will sovereignly save. So God uses the gospel to save, and all who are his shall be saved. The third aspect is the need of the word of God and instruction in this. Notice 30 to 35. He runs up to him because the Spirit says, go talk to this guy. He runs up to him, and he sees that he's reading the prophet Isaiah. He's reading it out loud, which would be the normal way of reading And he immediately says, do you understand what's going on there? And he's like, how? I don't have anyone to explain. He's reading most likely from the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. He's reading a very important part of Isaiah, which is probably most important Old Testament statement of the coming Savior, written about 1,500 years before Christ came. I do like the fact that even though he shows up to this place and he finds a chariot sitting out there in the middle of nowhere, that he's still too dense to figure out maybe he should go talk to the guy. I'm serious. I I actually find great encouragement from this is that you know he's like, okay, off I go. I'll go into the desert. And now he's out there in the middle of nowhere and there's just some guy sitting in a chariot reading and it hasn't dawned on him, maybe this is why I got sent out here. No, he's still oh okay. I'm here, and somehow the spirit's like, dude, go talk to him. Oh, I mean, it gives hope for an idiot, right? You're <laughs> like, okay, I, I'm 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 like him too much. But the man wants to know. He understands the passage. What he doesn't understand is to whom does it refer to? He understands what's it saying, but who is it? he's talking about. You actually see a lot of humility in this very powerful man. He understands how to read. He he just doesn't know to whom it talks. Now, here are the verses just before this section that is quoted here in Acts. In Isaiah 53, 4 through 6, this is what he just read, and then he started reading these when Philip walked up to him. He would have read, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And then from there, it's as a sheep that's led to slaughter, as a lamb before its shearer is silent. He was continued to read. His questions are who's the sin bearing one? Who is this one smitten of God by himself? Why does he die like a sheep being led away? And why does he do it without a complaint? What's going on? I don't understand. And so Philip takes that. And immediately says, well, then this is where we'll start from. And starting from there, notice it says that he preached Jesus to him. He didn't go off into all kinds of technical statements and theological ideas. He just tells them about who Jesus is. He wants them to understand that it's all about Jesus. So I'll start where you're at, and I'll start to work through and show you how Jesus is that one. So we see how the gospel works sovereignly through the written word. That's how God has chosen to reveal himself. In fact, you cannot underestimate the power and the value of having the Bible in your language. Martin Luther was a great reformer who lit the countryside alive with the gospel. But one of his greatest accomplishments was that he translated out of Latin and from Greek, he translated the Bible into German. The, German, the common man's German, not the highfalutin stuff. He brought the Bible into the language of the people. They could finally read. Now if they read, they don't understand. Now they can have someone explain it to them. Now they can hear the, the gospel, read the gospel, and believe the gospel. William Tyndale brought the Bible into the English language in the early 1500s. That's the only reason you're sitting here with a Bible. If some guy put his life on the line literally so that you can have the Bible in English. Check this guy's name out. Bathalamas Zangabog. You don't appreciate him, but our brothers and sisters Joseph and Sudana do, because back in the seventeen hundreds he traveled to India and he translated the Bible into Tamil. And the only reason our brother and sister have that in their language is because of this man. And now they can read. In fact, I've had conversations with my brother and sister where they say, but this is what it says. And then we talk, and they're reading it in their Tamil. And it's just what a blessing that we can do that and have this knowledge. Listen, one of the simplest things I do when I evangelize is I'll just simply ask the person this. What do you believe? Just what do you believe a Christian is? And you'll get all sorts of things, and you need to just chill and not get offended if they say some pretty ripe things. Just listen to them and hear, what do you think a Christian is? What makes you a Christian? And don't freak out and don't start rolling your eyes and don't start shaking your head. Just listen and ask more questions. And then as you do, if they totally miss it, which they usually do, you can smile and say, would it shock you if I said that none of that has anything to do with being a Christian? And I say this over and over again to people. None of that has to do with becoming a Christian or being a Christian. Really, yes. So let me ask you this. Could you be willing to give me some time where we could sit down together, open the Word, and just look at it and ask some basic questions? Sometimes they'll say, nope, I'm good. Sometimes they'll say, well, Maybe. Let's look at the calendar and we'll never hear. Other times you'll say, yeah, they do. And I always smile because the first thing I ask them is, do you have a Bible? And a lot of times they're like, well, no, I don't. I grab a Bible from the pew. I give it to them. I says, this is yours. And if anyone asks you where you got that, you tell them Pastor Matt gave it to you. And they won't bother you. Okay. Now they got the Bible and they're a little pause. Uh-oh. Crazy things happen, beloved, when you start reading the Bible. Crazy things happen. And then I say, we'll meet. We show up. I, I ask some basic questions. All I want them to do, I have no sales job. I can't save them. God is sovereign in salvation. I am called to do what? The gospel. That's it. I take them through. Ask them. I make them go home. I say, all I care about is that you think about who is Jesus, and if that's true, what then must you do? do. Who is Jesus? And if that's true, what must you do? That's, that's a hard, you guys can say that. But what really makes me happy is that the first week I meet with people, they're usually all over the map with their questions. I don't know. I had no idea what that question was. And I'm like, that's okay. We work through it and then we move on. And the next week, they come back, and they read a section, and we talk about how to go. And a lot of times, they start to say, you know, I read more than just that, though, this time. Oh, good. Okay. And inside, I'm just laughing. Three weeks ago, this guy, I don't even have a Bible. Now, he's like, yeah, I was reading. I've got a question. All right, what's the question? Well, answer the question. None of them are deep. But as it goes, they start to become confronted with this man, Jesus. What do you do with that? This is so simple, but it's very important to see. The sovereignty of God in salvation doesn't mean you just sit and watch. God has given us means to bring people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We have to bring the gospel. This is what the apostles did. They brought the gospel We have to have confidence that God's going to save his people. None of them will be lost. So we have that confidence, and we need to show them the word, get them into reading and inquiring about the Bible. But it doesn't end there. In verses 31 and 35, we see a fourth aspect of God's sovereignty, and that is that he uses teachers to teach you or to instruct sinners. The man understood he needed help, but what he also understood is he needed somebody to guide him. Now, what that means, I'm not going to go deep in here. I'm just going to make this very simple application. God will use you if you'll be willing to teach. Teach them the gospel. That means, though, that you have to be available. It means you have to learn to control your schedule in such a way that you'll be able to be available to talk with them, inquire, not always be rushing. You have to be able to ask very simple questions to see if they understand. What's interesting is when I when I meet or am willing to meet with a person and and say, "Will we do this? It'll take us eight weeks. I'll I'll give you my time," and I expect them to cancel. I've had people get frustrated. Well, Pastor, they keep canceling. So what? What do you care? They're unbelievers. Of course, they're going to cancel. But don't you cancel, don't you. You go there if you have to crawl on your hands and knees half dead. You trust in the Spirit of God to empower you to give them the gospel. Don't you come up with a reason to cancel, but let them cancel all they want, and you keep telling them, as soon as you're ready, we'll do it. I have people still who come wandering into this church to this day. For over 10 years, I have said, you know, I, I'm, the offer's still open. If you'd like to sit, I'll sit, yeah, Pastor, yeah, I appreciate that, and that where it's at. You have to make yourself available. It means you have to gather up knowledge so that when the opportunity arises, you don't just stare blankly at the person, like, "Oh, I don't, I don't know what to say." My question here to you is: Why do you come on a Sunday? Our purpose of having you come on a Sunday is so we can equip you to be able to be like Philip on the rest of the week, to recognize the need. And if the Spirit so prompts you to explain then the gospel from the Bible to a person who does not know, do you have that ability? You've been here for over a year. You do. You just don't believe you do. Or you're literally daydreaming all all Sunday. You have what it takes. We actually... Invested four weeks, showing you how simple it is. God is sovereignly going to do his salvation, but what he does is he invites you and I to be part of it. Well, let me end this, uh, this way. In verses 36 to 38, we see the last aspect. We see the last aspect, and that is that when God sovereignly saves, there's never a fight with the person. There's never a fight or a reluctance to obey what is right. So here he is in 36, it says, they went along the road, they came to some water. Now he's been preaching the good news about Jesus to him. And the eunuch then says, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Now pay attention, some of your translations will be different. And the Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And the eunuch said, I believe that Jesus Christ is son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized them. When you manufacture a confession of faith, when you get a person to, quote-unquote, ask Jesus in their heart, and you get that fake conversion, what you will find is that person will fight you because they're not truly converted as you call them to walk as a Christian and to be as a Christian ought to be and to begin to learn things, you'll find that there'll be a resistance. And the reason for that is their heart's not been changed. It's clear that part of what Philip was telling this man was that if he placed his faith in Jesus Christ as the one and only way of salvation, that the result of that would be that he should be baptized. It's very clear with that because... With no prompting, he sees water and he says, why can't I be baptized? But what you actually see is what a changed heart does. When God sovereignly changes a man or woman and their heart now says, I believe this, what you're seeing is just the sovereign work of God. What you really have is a new birth. Jesus talked about that. He says, you must be born again if you wish to see the kingdom of God. Well, how are you born again? How do you have this second birth? Our heart is dead before God. And he says it this way. He says, we need this new life actually before we can believe. So how are we going to believe if we don't have this? Well, that's where the sovereignty of God comes in. So John 3, Jesus says that the Spirit will make you alive but how will he do it? It's not because you ask him in your heart, but he will make your heart alive. And because your heart is changed, what you used to reject you now believe. But he says, it's just like the wind. You don't know where the wind is and where it's going, but you can feel the effect when it blows. He says, it's the same way of those who have been born again by the Spirit. As you're watching a guy or a girl, and they're happily going along, and all of a sudden, something has changed? What's changed? Well, very likely what's changed is they have a new heart, and the moment they have a new heart, they have new affections, and they have a new desire, and they want to walk a new way. And so you have a guy like this. He hears about Jesus, and the right thing out of his mouth is, then let's get baptized. No fight, no resistance, no trying to challenge. In fact, if you have a person who says they believe the gospel, but they're still trying to argue about what a Christian's called to be or do, you probably have a false Christian. You need to just keep bringing them the gospel. Now, baptism won't save you, but it is an act of obedience to one who believes. Reading your Bible won't save, right? But it's an act of obedience to those who do believe. Putting away sin in your life will not save you, but it is the mark of one who believes. It's never hard to see a true believer. Their actions will reflect what they believe. Watch them, especially in the hard times, and you'll see where their hope lies. But watch them in the good times and see how they live in light of the good times. Here's a man, a powerful man. He wants to understand. He was shown who Jesus is, and the first thing he wants to do is obey. Now, with that in mind, those are the five aspects of how God sovereignly saves, And they're not anything weird or strange. It's you bringing the gospel with the confidence that God will save all who are his. And so if it's in the middle of the uh, desert, fine. If it's in a great work of God in the city, fine. It doesn't matter that he will use his word. You need to be able to instruct people in that word. And that when you call them to have faith, that it will be very obvious that they believe when they're ready to make that obedient testimony of baptism. What's interesting is the story's not done from Luke's perspective. 39 and 40 then, Peter just goes away. It's the strangest thing. They, kept, they came up out of water. By the way, that shows you it's by immersion, not sprinkling, but that's a separate issue. When they come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatches Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him. Well, that's an understatement. Don't you want to back that up and say, I got questions? What do you mean he snatched him away? I mean, was it like Harry Potter and the flu powder, where you just sucked up the, what what happened? We're not told. And it's so typical. Instead of the big, fancy, miraculous things that people focus on today and they make a show of it, he just casually says, okay, you got the guy, he's saved, now you're leaving. And off he goes. And the eunuch doesn't seem to be freaked out either. He's like, I'm good. And he gets in his chariot and keeps on going. But what does Philip find himself doing? He's at Azotus or Zatus wherever that is, right? It's in Samaria. And what it is, is down here, and then he starts moving up. And what is he doing as he goes from Azotus to Caesarea? What is he doing? Look down and see it. He's proclaiming the gospel. The sovereignty of God in salvation is always going to be found in the gospel. So in the first part of Acts 8, we saw the gospel going out to many and many people, and many people believing. Exciting. The second part of chapter 8 is we see that God cared for this one man in the middle of nowhere. Both are wonderful works of God. This is how God worked. God is the one who will save, and your job is to be the one who preaches the gospel. Now, Before I close, I want to take one, well, one or two minutes max, okay? I want you to notice verse 37. In your translation, there might not even be a 37. You might go 36, 38. Or you should have a bracket like mine does around it. Or it might be in italics. Okay. Or it might be a footnote or it might be in the margin down below or in the side. Okay. It's all over the place. What's going on with verse 37? So I need to talk to you about that, but I don't want, I didn't want to distort or distract you from the core of what's going on here. And so Lord willing, in two weeks, I want to walk you through how we got the Bible and why you have things like that. Now, if you have the King James version here, you're already saying, in mine, I got no footnote. I got no italics. It's just there, and in chapter nine of Acts. So we're coming into it. There's actually verses there that are not in your other translations. What's going on? Why do we have them that way? How was how is that possible? Can we trust the Bible, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. You'll have all sorts of people saying all sorts of things about those. And so, what I'll do is, it, pray for me that I can make it remotely interesting to you. Uh but we'll get into the whole idea of how you got the Bible and why you can trust the Bible. But why is it that there's these types of things in there and how, what do you do with them? So pray for me as I work on that over the next two weeks. But for you, I just remind you, we love the Word. We have to be confident in the Word. But we have to believe that God is one who sovereignly saves and He will bring His people. Your job, bring the gospel. It's that simple. Let's pray. Father, as we prepare to go home, I pray first that we would reassert again that our hope is in Jesus alone, that we commit our hearts toward that alone, that in Christ we find all the forgiveness, that we do not earn it on our own, we do not help it, but it's found in Jesus. Second, I pray, Father, you'll give us that desire to share the gospel, that you will show us what it looks like when the power of God brings a person salvation, that we'll just rejoice in that. I pray that we would go home, therefore, with much hope. Bless us in that task, Father. Bless us with these convictions that we might truly be fully convicted in your Son's name. Amen.